Chapter Nineteen, Part Two of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Nineteen, Part Two. Some able men lectured in Cincinnati. I recall a wonderful lecture by Carl Schurz, little known then, on Napoleon III. The Honorable Edward Everett gave us his famous oration on George Washington in February 1858. My friend Edward Everett Hale, in his Memories of a Hundred Years, has given a portraiture of his uncle, Honorable Edward Everett, which is partly a vindication. To some extent this was needed especially by those who were contemporaries of that famous man. Edward Everett was a highly accomplished gentleman and scholar who had the misfortune to fall upon an age and crisis when trip-hammers were more valued than the superfine qualities he possessed. At Cambridge I heard stories concerning his presidency, evidently caricatures, showing that he had left there a reputation of childish timidity. One was that he saw a freshman playing leapfrog over the iron pillars at an entrance into the grounds. He sent for them and desired them to discontinue that sport, as they might loosen the pillars, and some reckless student might use one to batter in my door. In Boston, the anti-slavery people regarded him as weak and timid because of his record as a compromiser, and at Washington he had left a bad impression among the Unitarians because while in Congress he had not associated himself with their church, although he had been an eminent Unitarian minister. There was indeed nothing polemical about Everett. Nature had not given him any apparatus for either controversial or reforming work. For his inevitable passiveness in that stormy period, he was malgré lui, petted by reactionists, and had to suffer a share of the opprobrium visited on them. I had seen him in Boston, but first met him in Cincinnati, where he was the guest of William Green, uncle of the lady to whom I was betrothed. It was impossible not to be attracted by him personally. He was handsome in the ideal way. A fine portrait of him was painted in Cincinnati by my friend Oriel Eaton, but no art could quite render the elegant figure, the countenance so exquisitely oval, without being effeminate and the finely modeled features. Yet his manners in company were simple and unpretending, his eyes sweet and sympathetic. Mr. Hale denies the truth of the tradition that Everett's eloquence was merely academic. His celebrated lecture on George Washington did not impress me as academic. It was really a eulogy, based on what was then accepted as history, though it would now be regarded as all honey but I felt at the time that his art was not enough concealed. I remember particularly his taking up a glass of water beside him, and after sipping it, holding it for an instant in his right hand, and as he spoke of the limpid purity of Washington giving a little wave of his hand, by which some of the water fell in crystal drops to the floor. I could not think it quite by accident that the glass happened to be full of water at the right moment. For all that, the oration delivered by that calmly animated, even beautiful scholar, remains in my memory as an ideal thing in its way. 
and now when the miserable recriminations of that period are past i think of edward everett as a flower out of the culture of new england whose beauty and fragrance could not be fairly appreciated but that marvellous oration on george washington delivered throughout the great cities earned sixty two thousand dollars which without any deduction was given for the purchase of mount vernon on june first eighteen fifty eight i was married to ellen davis dana daughter of charles davis and sarah pond lyman dana of cincinnati mr dana belonged to the dedham massachusetts branch of the family his mother being an oliphant of the same state mrs dana was a daughter of joseph lyman of northampton massachusetts her elder sister abby lyman was the wife of william green of the rhode island family an eminent citizen in cincinnati it was a beautiful wedding two members of our church who had conservatories mr ernst and mr hoffman made the pulpit a mass of flowers and in front of it the young people under direction of the artist oriel eaton built a bower of white roses under which we stood the choir a fine quartet the organist being young edward don Ruther, now a distinguished composer in london increased its fame we were married by the rev dr furness who travelled from philadelphia to unite us in the evening we were serenaded by the chief musical society in the city a notable event was connected with the visit of dr furness when i offered him payment he said he would accept nothing for himself but would give what i offered to a working man of ability near philadelphia who for some time had preached for the methodists he had become unorthodox and would preach in the unitarian pulpit on the sunday of furness's absence the man was robert collier his appearance in an unorthodox pulpit on that day caused scandal in the philadelphia methodist conference which had licensed him as a local preacher he gave up his license and rapidly reached distinction as a unitarian when collier had become a preacher in chicago our friendship was formed in working together to place the western unitarian conference in an anti-slavery attitude that friendship has continued unbroken it was always a satisfaction to us that the first honorarium ever given robert collier for a sermon was our marriage fee the first copy of my tracts for to-day was presented to my betrothed and in it i find written silver and gold have i none but such as i have give i thee these words were more strictly true than most of our friends could imagine my wife's father through an unfortunate endorsement of a friend's notes had lost nearly everything i had managed to save nearly two thousand dollars which was deposited with the life and trust company in cincinnati the failure of that company began the crisis of eighteen fifty seven i got only ten cents on the dollar i had to ask an advance on my salary in order to buy furniture but my bride and i regarded the poverty attending our first steps as a sort of joke our bridal party including samuel longfellow and rev dr furness went on an excursion down the ohio there being on the steamboat a bridal stateroom decorated with venus the graces and cupids at the mammoth cave we lost the light of one day groping in the weird underworld bride and bridesmaids having exchanged their wedding raiment for indescribable bloomers 
on our return to cincinnati we fixed ourselves in a small house then one fourteen hopkins street and were conscious only of our riches we had health and friends and freedom of heart and mind and my salary two thousand dollars nearly twice the value of what that sum would be now was sufficient for our indulgence even in hospitality lately i sought out that first house of ours where our eldest child eustace was born gray and alone i witnessed to my heart that love can make a fairyland in a very humble abode the year eighteen fifty eight was altogether beautiful it was a constant exhilaration to find every channel of influence open every hand willing to work was wanted the journals wanted editorials various societies wanted addresses and events were continually occurring which called forth ethical discussion the woman question was burgeoning out in various shapes a woman was arrested in cincinnati for being found in male attire she came into the police court with her brother and with a clear eye and firm voice declared that she had assumed this dress to get employment her brother worked as a common hand she usually as a cabin boy and she found she could do better work in this dress and also that she was safer when sentenced to wear female dress the girl burst into tears and said that she could always get work as a boy but as a girl would perish another case excited extreme interest a young lady applied for a license to practice law it was not supposed that the judges would take the application seriously but they decided that no law excluded women from the bar we suffered however a cruel disappointment the lady had studied many law books but did not know the extent of the examination required finding that she would have to go through a law school she abandoned her enterprise in dealing with such matters as these i had happily one at my side on whose counsel to depend i did not espouse all that was called women's rights but did not ridicule the much confused cause and in an early sermon said when any clear flame comes out of that smoke i will be as ready as any one to light my torch thereat and bear it before men the fire beneath that smoke i regarded as the restrictions on female employment and its underpayment i canvassed the business establishments and although i found that woman's work was better paid than in the eastern cities the women teaching in our high schools were getting an average of from five hundred to seven hundred dollars for the same work that brought the male teachers twelve hundred to seventeen hundred the only fair field for women was the theatres in each of them besides the actresses who were highly paid a considerable number of girls were employed at five dollars a week who had most of each day free i demanded the right of women to every occupation and profession despite all my freedom there was a curious survival in me up to my twenty-seventh year of the methodist dread of card-playing the only indoor game i knew was chess there was a flourishing chess club in cincinnati and i entered into the matches with keen interest for a time i edited a weekly chess column in the cincinnati commercial and wrote an article on chess which lowell published in the atlantic monthly whenever in new york i hastened to the chess club there and watched the play of Liechtenstein, thompson perrin marash fisk editor of the chess monthly and colonel meade president of the club 
this was at a time when the wonderful paul morphy was exciting the world in july eighteen fifty eight i called on him at the brevoort house new york he was a rather small man with a beardless face that would have been boyish had it not been for the melancholy eyes he was gentlemanly and spoke in low tones it had long been out of the question to play with him on even terms the first-class players generally received the advantage of a knight but being a second-class player i was given a rook in some letter written at the time i find mention of five games in which i was beaten with these odds but managed or was permitted to draw the sixth in the same letter i find the following when one plays with morphy the sensation is as queer as the first electric shock or first love or chloroform or any entirely novel experience as you sit down at the board opposite him a certain sheepishness steals over you and you cannot rid yourself of an old fable in which a lion's skin plays a part then you are sure you have the advantage you seem to be secure you get a rook you are ahead two pieces three gently as if wafted by a zephyr the pieces glide about the board and presently as you are about to win the game a soft voice in your ear kindly insinuates mate you are speechless again and again you try again and again you are sure you must win again and again your prodigal antagonist leaves his pieces at your mercy but his moves are as steps of fate then you are charmed all along so bewitchingly are you beheaded one would rather be run through by bayard you know than spared by a pretender on the whole i could only remember the oriental anecdote of one who was taken to the banks of the euphrates where by a princely host he was led about the magnificent gardens and bowers then asked if anything could be more beautiful yes he replied the chess play of el zuli so having lately sailed as i wrote you down the hudson having explored staten island hoboken fort hamilton and all the glorious retreats about new york i shall say forever that one thing is more beautiful than them all the chess play of paul morphy this was in july eighteen fifty eight i had already received a domestic suggestion that it was possible to give too much time to an innocent game and the hint was reinforced by my experience with morphy i concluded that if after all the time i had given to chess any man could give a rook and beat me easily any ambition in that direction might as well be renounced thenceforth i played only in vacations or when at sea end of part two and end of chapter nineteen